This past week I was having lunch with a fellow pastor here in the area and he was telling me that he was, uh, what he was preaching on. Uh, he's been preaching through 3rd John. He told me that this past week uh, he preached on a single word in 3rd John. He preached on the word rejoice. And then he, he turned and he asked me, he said, so what, what are you preaching on this coming Sunday? And I said, I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, great, which part? And I said, no, 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 the whole thing. And he looked at me like I have three heads. Um, and Lord willing, we, we are going to study the whole Sermon on the Mount this morning. Um, we're pursuing this not because I want to keep you here until two, or because I want to try your patience, but because I want you to see the whole of Jesus' sermon and what he's trying to communicate in it and through it. Because Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so practical, we, we sometimes only study its parts. Uh, perhaps we're struggling with anger. So, so we turn to that section and we study what Jesus has to say about anger. Or, or perhaps we, we want to grow in our prayer life. And so we, we study the Lord's Prayer. You know, those individual studies are, are important and useful. And we should pursue them. But if we forget the, the larger context of them... Sometimes we will miss some of their depth. Just, just taking the Lord's Prayer uh, as an example, which Jesus preaches on uh, in this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, did you know that the Lord's Prayer comes in the wider context of Jesus warning His disciples against self-righteousness? How does that play into what we think about the Lord's Prayer? Well, I hope we get to think about that kind of question this morning. It's my prayer that this morning as we study Jesus' sermon, we would truly hear what he was saying, not just to his disciples, but also to us. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, then you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 809. 809. And while you're turning there, uh, let me remind us of a little bit of background concerning Matthew's gospel. The focus of Matthew's gospel, who was a disciple of Jesus, wrote shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, the focus of Matthew's gospel appears to be uh, aimed at convincing his readers that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. Matthew even told us the purpose of Christ's coming. He came to save sinners. Or to put it in the words of the Sermon on the Mount, the righteous one came to save the unrighteous. Matthew demonstrated that Jesus has the authority to do this. He has the authority to save sinners because of what we saw in chapters 3 and 4. He revealed Jesus' righteous, His sinless character for us. Jesus reveals His authority in another way, which we see in this Sermon on the Mount through His teaching. So what we see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The, the portion of Matthew's gospel we're studying together this morning. Uh, if I had to kind of uh, summarize it in a single sentence or a single idea, what's the Sermon on the Mount all about? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. Now, I think I've provided an outline of the sermon there in uh, your bulletin, so uh, that will help you follow along, and so will keeping uh, that main idea in mind. Let's begin with our first point. 
the authority of the king. Again, if you're taking notes, this is the first point of the sermon, the authority of the king. Does Jesus even have the authority to issue this call to righteousness? Now, if you've, if you've had the privilege of scanning over Matthew chapters 5 through 7, then you'll have noticed that Jesus addresses a number of relevant issues that we deal with every day. Uh, he speaks about righteous living, about anger, about lust, divorce, oaths, loving your enemies, caring for the poor, prayer, fasting, money, anxiety, judging others, and much, much more. The reality is, is that while these chapters do present a kingdom ethic, an ethic which subjects of the king should live by, the, the circumstance, the content, character, and context of the sermon all communicate that Jesus does have this authority, that he is the righteous king whom we should submit to, whom we should live under his rule and reign. And living out the righteous life described in these chapters, first and foremost, requires that you live under the authority of the righteous king. And Jesus has, himself has already made this abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is obviously a summary of Jesus' teaching and preaching. But does not that summary of the king's preaching and teaching tell you something about him? He is given an authoritative command. He is calling his hearers. He is calling, commanding you and me to turn away from building our own kingdoms in order that we might come into his this is where the Sermon on the Mount begins and ends. It begins and ends by underscoring Jesus' authority as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and the sermon goes on, begins. But do you see how Jesus' authority is communicated with these words in these first two verses? He went up on a mountain. Now, if you remember your biblical history, mountains have often been the place at which divine revelation has taken place. We think of Moses on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, which you read earlier, and God's design for the tabernacle. Here, Jesus deliberately chooses a mountain as the situation in which he will reveal God's divine will for his people. Jesus chose a mountain, and he also chose to sit down. In his day, that was the authoritative posture for teachers. And notice, too, that his disciples came to him. It's not as though he had to go around, gather folks. He had to, he had to collect a crowd. No. He sat down, and they came to him. And as they did, he opened his mouth, and he taught them. This is not a scene of reciprocal learning. Jesus is not asking to hear others on the subject. It's not a dialogue. At no point in this discourse does another voice emerge to offer additional teaching on the subject or to correct Jesus' teaching. No. Jesus speaks. Everyone else listens. Now, turn over in your Bibles just a few pages to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, take a look. At Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Consider what is said after Jesus finishes his sermon. This is what Matthew says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. 
and not as their scribes. Jesus' teaching is astonishing because He is astonishing. Here is a man who had resisted and defeated Satan in the wilderness. Here is God in the flesh, as we learn from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. No wonder He taught them as one who had authority. His teaching was unlike the scribes because all of their teaching was derivative. Their teaching depended upon the authority of other previous scholars and scribes. In their teaching, the, the scribes would say, you know, as, as so-and-so, a scholar so-and-so has said, but as we'll see over and over again in this sermon, Jesus will say, I say to you, depending upon no one else for his declarations and demands. Jesus doesn't depend upon the authority of others for, the, for his validity of his demands as king. He does not appeal to any higher authority than himself. For who possesses a higher authority than the king? His words strike our ears, arrest us, and call us to submit to the king. The bookends that Matthew provides us here in the Sermon on the Mount call us to consider whether or not we have recognized, whether or not we have recognized Jesus' authority in our lives. Is the righteous king of the kingdom, is his righteousness being made known in our lives? Well, what is the nature of the righteousness of the kingdom? We get a glimpse of that in our second section. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 to 16. So flip back to the beginning of the sermon. Matthew chapter 5. Take a look at verses uh, 2 uh, through 12. We'll just read 2 through 12 right now. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here, Jesus opens his sermon with a list. He lists the characteristics and qualities of the subjects and citizens of his kingdom. Among other things, they are meek and merciful. They are forgiving and faithful to the end. Above all, they are blessed and rewarded. Biblically speaking, to be blessed is to be under God's favor. Note in these beatitudes, in these pronouncements of blessing, what kind of people are blessed. Look, look at the first one there in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Now let me ask you this. What resources do spiritually bankrupt people have to give God and receive His blessing in return? Nothing. 
the kind of people who are blessed by God are not people who have earned God's favor or done something for Him in order for Him to reward them. They're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to give. They are not the kind of people who think that they have something that God needs, but the kind of people who know that they need God. This is the fundamental character of the subjects of the king. They know that they need God. And those who truly know their need of God can also know that they will enter the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed and an eternal blessing yet awaits them. Are we the kind of people that Jesus mentions in these Beatitudes? We might understand the character of those whom Jesus describes in these verses better if we consider their reverse. I was helped by reading Ray Ortland's reversal of these kingdom characteristics and characters. This is how he reverses the kingdom characters of the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. When, when I read that, did you think of yourself? Did you think to yourself, too often that's me? Did you think to yourself, too often I'm entitled, carefree, pushy, self-righteous, vengeful, and argumentative? And did you say to yourself, Lord, I need you. I need you to grow within me the characteristics of the real Beatitudes, of meekness and humility. Or when I read those statements about those who are entitled and carefree, pushy, etc., did you think to yourself, phew, I'm nothing like that? Those two responses might indicate the difference between one who recognizes that he is spiritually bankrupt and one who does not. Those two responses might indicate whether or not you're really a subject of the king. Subjects of the king hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, and pray for the Lord to bear out those characteristics in their, their lives. And God will answer this prayer from His people. We've already heard in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus will baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. Which is to say that from within He will make them alive and renew them. They will begin to display the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the characteristics of the King. They will begin to reflect the one they follow. Even the character that is described here in the Beatitudes. And when they do, Jesus says there in verse 11, that His followers will often be persecuted on His account. Should Jesus' followers then kind of blend in with the world around them? Well, according to verses 13 to 16, the answer to that question is no. Those who serve the King should not lose their saltiness. Their lives should not have a bland flavor which is indistinguishable from the world around them. Christian, the world should taste your life and see that the Lord is good. Which means that they need to taste something different than what they taste every day. Followers of Jesus 
should rejoice and remember that their reward is in heaven. And pray that the Lord be pleased to allow others to see their good deeds and glorify God by becoming subjects of the King. And this leads us to the third point that we want to consider together. The conduct of the King's subjects. The conduct of the King's subjects. With the coming of Jesus, there is not a doing away with righteous living. Sinners are forgiven for their transgressions of God's law. Yes, and yet, the redeemed are to reflect the righteousness of their King. We know that from what Jesus has already told His disciples. They're to keep their saltiness. They're to keep shining. Verses 17 to 48 in chapter 5 carry this conversation forward. Now let's start by reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is telling us that the whole Old Testament points to Him. That's what the law and the prophets are. They're a summary of the whole Old Testament. That's what He means when He says He's come to fulfill them. He is the telos, the end and goal of the entire Old Testament. And this is good news for those who have read the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes and honestly and openly admit, I haven't kept God's commandments. Sadly, it doesn't sound too much like me from time to time. Here we have Jesus saying that He is the righteous one that we need. He is our hope. He is the one who will keep the law for us. He is the one who will be meek and pure in heart and humble for us where we have not. Jesus says something positive here. He says that He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But He also says something negative. Did you pick up on that? Jesus says that He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And this is important given what Branch is teaching we'll actually venture out onto next. Over the next several verses, Jesus will deploy the phrase, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus' audience had heard teaching on the subjects of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and, and so forth. And they believed that the teaching to be in accordance with the Old Testament law. Why wouldn't they? Uh, they, they heard these teachings from the, the Pharisees and scribes, the supposed teachers of the law. But in reality, Jesus' teaching on these subjects is what was in accord with the Old Testament law. Now get this. Because it's in accord with Him, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the one who first gave the law, it's not hard to see then why the scribes and the Pharisees might want to put an end to Jesus' teaching and an end to Him. Jesus wants us to know that He is not relaxing the Old Testament's teaching one bit. He believes that it is God's Word, and because it is God's Word, it has authoritative implications for His disciples. In fact, those implications will remain in force until heaven and earth pass away. According to Jesus, those who would enter the kingdom must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most learned, most devout, most religious, most righteous people of Jesus' day. If people wanted to look around for an example, well, what does righteous living look like? They would look to these men, to the scribes and Pharisees. It was impossible to have a righteousness 
that exceeded theirs. What would that kind of righteousness even look like, played out? Righteousness that exceeded theirs. Well, that kind of perfect righteousness would look like the kind of righteousness we see in verses 21 to 26. That kind of perfect righteousness would look like not murdering another person. We might think, well, that's not that hard. But the kind of murder that Jesus talks about in these verses is not murdering another person with your hands, but murdering them in your heart through anger. Everyone has been angry. And therefore, from the perspective of Jesus and the Old Testament law, we're all murderers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, you, if you're at odds, if you're angry with another person, another brother or sister in this congregation, if you're angry with him, let me encourage you to pursue reconciliation with them. Humble yourself, confess your sin, and seek their forgiveness. In verses 27 to 32, Jesus continues to outline the kind of perfect righteousness that he's looking for in the lives of his disciples. It's the kind of righteousness that doesn't commit adultery or lead others to commit adultery. And once again, Jesus is not simply talking about the physical act. No. He points out that anyone who has looked upon another person with emotions and affections and desires which belong only to someone who is your spouse, then you've committed adultery. Who here is not in need of God's forgiveness? These sins run deep in our hearts. And we should try to help one another in this regard too. By and large, the the women of this congregation do a wonderful job at dressing modestly. Ladies, thank you for serving your brothers in Christ in this way. Brothers, let's challenge one another to look away from women, commercials, shows, and advertisements that are not modest and which don't help us reflect the righteousness of God in our hearts and lives. In fact, just as murder and adultery are matters of the heart, which reveal whether or not one is living in accord with the spirit of God's righteousness, so is divorce, Jesus says. People in Jesus' day were using the law to hastily divorce one another. They were divorcing one another for small and petty reasons. Rather than having righteous hearts, they had rebellious hearts. And to make matters worse, it's clear that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were telling their hearers what they wanted to hear. They're saying, sure, you don't like this or that about your spouse. Go ahead, you can, you can divorce your wife. The law gives you the right to do that. Jesus clarifies the Old Testament law and says, No, contrary to the teaching that you have heard from the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot go around divorcing to your heart's content. Instead, I say to you, divorce is not permitted except in cases of adultery. God's law concerning divorce and remarriage is concerned with love that displays God's committed love. Now, if you're interested in pursuing this study further, study this subject further, I'd be, I'd be happy to recommend a number of, of resources on the subject of divorce and remarriage, um, including a paper that the elders of this congregation have written on the subject. We studied and tried to write up a paper that we thought would be helpful to people who wanted to think through these things. Feel free to send me an email uh, or find me at the door uh, or speak with another elder about this important subject if you want to think more about what Jesus says here. 
The kind of righteousness that Jesus is demanding from his disciples is God's righteousness. And this can even be seen in our words and vows too. The kind of righteousness that Jesus demands is a life that is marked by such truthfulness that anyone can take you at your word because they know your righteous character. Verses 33 to 37. The kind of righteousness that Jesus demands from his disciples is the righteousness that does not return evil with evil, but seizes the opportunity to love your enemy. Verses 38 to 47. In short, the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands is a perfect righteousness. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what Jesus means when he said that our righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who here has that kind of righteousness? The righteousness of God. Who here has never committed murder or or adultery in their hearts? Who here has never gone back on their word? Who here has never returned evil for evil? None of us are perfect. So then does Jesus think that we can achieve this perfection in this life? No. In just a moment, he's going to teach us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus does not think that we can achieve this kind of righteousness and perfection in this life on our own. That's why he came. So he could be our perfect righteousness. He is the righteous one, the one without sin, as Matthew 4 makes clear. And while Jesus knows that he will be our righteous substitute, he fully expects his followers to lean into God's grace and live out this righteousness with God's help. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness by trusting in his righteousness. We are to let our light shine before men, but we are not to self-righteously flaunt whatever light the Lord has given us in his grace. I say that because after Jesus has exhorted his disciples to live righteous lives, he turns and warns them against self-righteousness. This is actually a part of living righteously, avoiding self-righteousness. This is what we turn to consider our next point, the piety of the king's subjects. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. In these verses, Jesus walks through three examples of flaunting one's self-righteousness. He addresses generosity to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 now. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now Jesus' teaching here is fairly straightforward, isn't it? 
Don't go around flaunting your generosity. I mean, if you're seeking your reward from men, I suppose that you could. But would you rather be rewarded by men or by God? True righteousness does not consist of seeing to it that you're honored by men, but seeing to it that men honor God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wouldn't address this subject of self-righteousness unless he thought this was going to be a challenge for us. Practice your piety in private. That's not to say that there's never a time when it is appropriate for us to demonstrate our faith in God publicly. After all, Jesus has told us in the sermon to to let our light shine before men. The the point is is that when it comes to matters like caring for the poor, uh, other men don't need to see or know what you're doing. When you make this kind of piety public, you're just your own publicist. The only person you're promoting is yourself. The only name that is hallowed is your own. Jesus also warns about this public self-righteousness in relation to prayer. Before Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he actually teaches them how not to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus tells his disciples not to pray like hypocrites. Jesus speaks of men praying in public as though they're trying to raise their reputations before other men, just like they were doing when they were giving to the needy. In other words, Jesus essentially tells his disciples, don't pray for your own praise, and don't pray as though you don't have any needs. Self-righteousness in this way lies about our true estate. We are needy people. We are sick and we are hurting. We are tired and we're discouraged. We are tempted and we're struggling. And this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And in his kindness, he teaches them how to pray. It is a prayer that we can repeat and make our own. And it is also a model for how we ought to pray. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Pray then like this. And now follow along as I read the rest of the prayer, beginning there in verse uh, 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For self-righteous hypocrites who are concerned with promoting their own name in public, how appropriate it is that Jesus begins by teaching his disciples to hallow the name of our Father in heaven. He teaches us that God's name should be praised and not our own. He teaches us to pray for God's kingdom and not our own. He teaches us to pray for what we need, bread, forgiveness, Protection and deliverance. Jesus is just aiming at our self-righteousness and our supposed self-sufficiency, isn't he? It's such a simple and profound prayer. We are people who are in need. And, And in case we didn't catch our need for forgiveness announced in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus again repeats and stresses our need for forgiveness in verse 14 and 15. Because... 
That's what self-righteous people forget they need most. We need to be forgiven. And we need to forgive. Self-righteous people like us have a hard time forgiving. We like to hold the trespasses of others against them. Use it. Well, you, you did this. You remember when you did that? Calling those things to mind in an argument or conversation? You haven't forgiven. You're continuing to hold those trespasses against someone else. But God doesn't do that with us. And we should not do that with others. In verses 16 to 18, Jesus continues to attack our tendency to, be, to publicly proclaim our piety. Just like giving to the poor in prayer, so with fasting, Jesus encourages us not to call for the pity-mixed praise of others by looking gloomy when we fast. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't play up the difficulty of the fast in front of others so that you can hear them tell you, wow, this fast really is difficult for you. I really admire your devotion to the Lord. In that scenario, who receives the attention and praise? Usually not the Lord. The purest form of piety promotes the praise of God's name and not our own. One of the things that I found interesting about this passage when studying is that Jesus assumes that we as his followers will care for the poor, will pray and fast. Do these things mark your life? And I'm not asking you to answer out loud. We need to go publicly talking about our own piety here. I'm just asking you to reflect on it. Think about it. Do these things mark your life? Is who you are in public before men who you are in private before the Lord? Jesus has called his people to be righteous and to be on guard against self-righteousness. He has even exposed the lie that we are self-sufficient. When we pray for the Lord to provide our daily provisions, we are admitting that we are not self-sufficient, that we're dependent. And having our eyes open to the fact that we're not self-sufficient could tempt us to be anxious. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, Jesus pastorally shepherds us through this anxiety by reminding us that we can trust in our good, generous, and gracious God. Jesus tells us that we can place our confidence in God to care for us. This is what we think about in our next point. The confidence of the king's subjects. The confidence of the king's subjects. Read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21 with me. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here, as, a, as one scholar observed, Jesus tells us what to do. He tells us what not to do, what to do, and why we do what we do. Uh, Jesus tells us not to lay up our treasures here on this earth, in verse 19. Instead, we're to lay up our treasures in heaven, verse 20. And in verse 21, Jesus tells us, that what we do reveals where our heart is at home. Is our heart at home in this world? If it is, I think we're often going to be anxious. And our wealth and our material resources will likely be largely dedicated to making a home, a secure home in this world. 
to our heart's desire heaven as our home. Then, knowing that we can never lose that home, we can use our, our wealth and resources for the glory of God, for those things which cannot decay and pass away. Where is your heart at home? Uh, if, if you want to know the answer to that question, maybe step back and take stock of your life. Where is your time, money, and energy going to? I'll often tell you where your confidence rests. What are you, what are you anxious about? And why are you anxious about it? I wonder if you see how this idea of where your heart is at home or is at rest is connected to the idea of anxiety that Jesus explicitly talks about there in verses 22 to 24. <clears throat> in these verses, Jesus moves from the heart to the eye. But he's really talking about the same thing. Are your eyes fixed on God, His law, His righteousness, and holiness, and your home in heaven with Him? Or are our eyes fixed on the darkness? Are they fixed on the cares of this world? Are your eyes fixed on money? We can't serve both God and money, as Jesus says. And this is where anxiety so often makes itself known. Will we give ourselves to total trust and devotion and confidence in our God? Will we put our confidence in Him? Or will we try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in, in His kingdom? Perhaps, perhaps your fear, your anxiety, your concern of, of giving control of your life up stems from the fact that you forget who God is or you don't know who He is. Jesus tells us in verse 25 not to be anxious about our lives. And then He tells us why in verse 26. Read Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God loves His children. And He will care for them. He, he is a good Father who sees to it that His children have what they need. We can trust Him. We place our confidence in Him. Jesus, if you noticed in these verses, He makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If He feeds the birds, then He'll also feed you. He loves you more than the birds. This doesn't mean that we don't have to work. We do. It means that we don't have to worry. We can trust our Father and be confident that He will provide for us. We can trust Him to meet our daily needs. Friend, if He gave you bread and breath today, He has shown you grace on this day. And still there's something more that we should see in our daily provisions that should encourage our faith and trust in our Heavenly Father. We should see God's faithfulness to give us what we need in our daily provisions. How many days have you been alive on this earth? Think about it. How many days have you been alive on this earth? If you've been alive for 10 years, then, you, then the Lord has given you bread and breath for more than 3,000 days. You've seen more than 3,000 practical examples of Lord's faithfulness in your life. If you've been alive for 20 years, then the Lord has given you daily bread for more than 7,000 days. I could keep going on. We could keep kind of multiplying it out. But, but I hope you get the point. God has provided bread for you each day. And He's sustained your life 
thus far. And that should tell you something about His faithfulness. He does not grow tired or weary of giving His children bread. He can be trusted. We can be confident that He will provide. We should trust Him. We should, in the words of verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. To seek God's kingdom is not to build our own and to trust in ourselves and in our own strength. Instead, it's to trust Him. To trust that He is at work in our lives and to live our lives working for the glory of His name. Well, Jesus has called His disciples to pursue righteousness, to be on guard against self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. He's called us to put our confidence in God. Next, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, Jesus describes the love of the king's subjects. The love of the king's subjects. And this is the point that we want to consider next. And as we do, uh, read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5 now. Matthew 7, just verses 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Those who have been called to pursue righteousness are sometimes prone to temporarily take the throne of the righteous judge. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 is perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible. While within the Christian community, kind of John 3.16 stands out as the, the verse we all know and love and treasure and for good reason. But both inside and outside of the Christian community, people love to utter the words, judge not, don't judge me. Ironically, the phrase is so often misused. When someone says, don't judge me, ironically, they are setting themselves up as the supreme judge over who has the right and authority to speak into their lives. And it's usually no one else. And calling out, don't, you know, don't judge me, can even become a form, a subtle form of bullying to shut a conversation down. We should not love to judge. But Jesus tells us that we should judge in love. Jesus does not say that sin cannot and should not be addressed in someone else's life. There are numerous examples of this elsewhere in Scripture. We can just think of Paul confronting Peter in his sin. In fact, the outcome of verse 5, I don't know if you noticed this, but the outcome of verse 5 assumes that sin will be addressed in the life of another person. What Jesus says is that we need to first recognize that we are sinners. And that we need to address the sin in our lives before we address the sin in our brother's life. But if we love our brother, we will address his sin. And so what Jesus is teaching us is how to make loving, honest, humble, compassionate judgments that address our sin and appropriately our brother's sin too. However, we will need wisdom in this pursuit of humble, compassionate, and loving judgment. Sometimes it will be useless 
for us to offer loving correctives to others. That's why Jesus tells us not to throw our pearls before swine. That's how that verse connects to what Jesus is saying. We need wisdom in this regard. Should, should I express my concern for the sin that I see in my brother's life? What should I do? Or would I just be throwing pearls before swine? We need wisdom and discernment in this regard. So what does Jesus tell us to do? Well, in verses 7 and 11, 7 through 11, uh, Jesus tells us to ask our Father for wisdom, the wisdom that we need, the wisdom and discernment. And Jesus says something more too. He actually assures us that God will give us the wisdom that we need in this regard. He is a Father who loves us, is near to us, and is intimately involved in the details of our daily lives. This means, <coughs> this means then, that when a Christian lovingly, humbly, and compassionately speaks into your life about a sin that you're struggling with, you need to assume that the Lord has given them some wisdom about the matter. What then is the relationship of the golden rule to all of this? That's what verse 12 is, or what it's commonly known as, the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. What Jesus is saying here is that we are to love God and that we are to imitate His love as we love others. This is the sum of the law and the prophets, to love God and love others. This is what Jesus teaches a little later on in this gospel. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, Jesus teaches us that love for God and love for neighbor is the sum of the law and the prophets. And this is what Jesus embodied in His own life. And this is what his disciples are to reflect in theirs and in their interactions with others. Love for God and love for others. We are to love others even sometimes by having loving but difficult conversations with them. In some ways, verse 12 represents the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Jesus has certainly been practical about a number of aspects of, uh, for life as citizens of the kingdom. But he has also been somewhat abstract. And what I mean by that is he hasn't made a personal appeal to his hearers. He has outlined what the, what the life of a citizen of his kingdom looks like. But he hasn't yet called his hearers to become his subjects. To come under his rule. And that's what he does in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 27. In these verses he calls his hearers to become subjects and to enter his kingdom. And this is what we're going to think about in our final point. The call of the king. Read Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 20 with me. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Take special note of that word that begins verse 13 there. Enter. It's a striking word. 
And it makes clear that no one is naturally a part of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, no one by default is a member of the kingdom of heaven. Being born into a Christian family does not make you a member of the kingdom. Turning up to church on a Sunday morning doesn't make you a subject of the king. (coughs) Anyone who is a part of the kingdom must enter the kingdom. And that means it must be a considered, conscious, and deliberate choice. But entering the kingdom of heaven requires that you walk the narrow way. The way that few have walked. Those who call out to you and who tell you that following Jesus is easy. Or it doesn't really you know, uh, matter what you do with your life. Following Jesus is easy. They, they don't really know much about what it means to follow Jesus, I think. Does anything about the righteous life that Jesus has uttered in this sermon sound easy to you? Jesus warns his hearers not to be led astray by such people who say that living for the king is easy. No, you'll you'll probably be able to tell that they're not truly citizens of the kingdom because their life is filled with bad fruit. It's probably not filled with the fruit of righteousness. It can be seen in the Beatitudes. Instead, their life probably looks a lot like it looked before they supposedly became a follower of Jesus. There's not much salt in it. There's not much light shining. It's not much different in the world around them. Jesus actually presses the point further there in verses 21 to 23. Read those verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When we hear these words, it's startling to consider that Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, was sitting right there listening. Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. He cast out demons in Jesus' name. But he never really knew Jesus. He never really believed him and followed him in his heart. He never really entered the kingdom. His heart was opposed to Jesus. And that became apparent when he took the silver in his hands. He was so close to the kingdom, so close to the king, and yet so far away. He never entered the kingdom. How then do we enter the kingdom? And this is where I'd like us to conclude. How do we hear and respond to the call of the king? How do we avoid the fake faith of Judas and become servants and subjects of the king? Read verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. How do we enter the kingdom? We enter the kingdom by hearing the words of Jesus and making them, making him the foundation of our lives. In this sermon, Jesus has said that he is the one who the law and the prophets pointed to. 
He said that He is the Savior who the whole Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. The one who came to save His people from their sins. And through this sermon, Jesus has demonstrated that He is the righteous King who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. Are you a subject of this King? The consequences of not becoming a subject of this King are great. Read verses 26 and 27 now. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Those who do not enter the kingdom will face the storm of God's eternal wrath. They will suffer a great fall from which there is no getting up again. Friends, Jesus has made his authority known in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has identified our sin. We commit murder and adultery in our hearts. We are unrighteous and God would be totally and completely just to punish us for our sins forever in hell. Jesus has said some difficult things to us in this sermon. But he has also said some things to us that give us great hope and assurance. And chief among them is that he has come to fulfill the law. Jesus has lived the righteous life, the life of pure piety, of pure trust and confidence and devotion to God. He never sinned. He never murdered or committed adultery in his heart. He never served two masters. He was never anxious about his future. He was perfectly righteous in thought, word, and deed. And he was so for the whole course of his life. You see, Jesus' life was a living of this sermon. And having perfectly lived out the righteousness described in this sermon, he laid his life down. Jesus died upon the cross. And when he did, he took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And he not only laid his life down, but three days after his death, God raised him up. God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he is indeed the righteous one, the king whom we should serve. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a subject of the king, then I want to encourage you to hear the call of the king, the call to turn from your sins and to be forgiven for them. And to trust in Him. To hear His words. Believe that He lived for you the life that you have not lived. Believe that He died for you. The death that you deserve to die for the punishment of your sins. And to believe that He was raised from the grave for you. So that you might be received into the kingdom of heaven. All because of the righteousness of the King. Which you receive as your own. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you want to think more about what it means to be a subject of the king and to trust him and the righteousness that he lived out over the course of his whole life. And please do talk with a friend or family member or coworker you came with this morning. Find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than hearing the call of Jesus and answering it by entering his kingdom in faith. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 Make clear that Jesus is the righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. Jesus is the righteous king 
whom we should serve. Is he the king that you serve? Let's pray together.